Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined as always by Brian Gottlieb. And I didn't want to talk about this. I really didn't. But I think that because it was all over the Twitter discourse today that we kind of have to, and Brian is making me, and that's, uh, that's, that's who I'm going to blame it on. That's kind of the general flow of the show lately, is that I drag you to the table and make you talk about something you don't want to talk about every week. I'm glad two this weeks, has become a real, a a real painful experience for you to sit down and do the podcast every week. You gotta, you gotta start trends somehow, you know? It starts with one, then it goes to two. I mean... Right, so just, pretty soon we're just going to transition to a format of just things you don't want to talk about. That's going to be the entirety of the cast. <laughs> Stuff that Brian <laughs> makes me talk about. <laughs> The thing that we're talking about that I don't want to talk about is this news announcement titled Magic's Voyages to Universes Beyond, which is an official announcement from Wizards of the Coast. And the front half of the announcement is basically talking about how certain IPs such as The Lord of the Rings and Warhammer 40K are going to be printed as magic sets, you know, like if... Like we go to Innistrad, well, now we're going to Middle Earth. Good, good summation. There, there is more to it than that, though, right? Like there's, there's a lot. There's some complications and interesting stuff happening with this. But the the broad hundred foot view is that we're going to different. Are they planes? I don't even know if they're planes. We're we're going to different places with magic design. We're going to touch on a bunch of different IPs. Walking Dead was just the tip of the iceberg. This should surprise absolutely nobody right like we saw the godzilla stuff we saw the walking dead stuff walking dead i believe was the best-selling secret layer of all time oh come on so this was just going to keep happening and and keep evolving so zero surprise it's, in this announcement it, it's messed up because the walking dead is kind of like nickelback at this point you know like it was cool for a little bit and now just basically anyone who i interact with is just like oh yeah that show sucks like how how dare you watch that show or whatever like everyone is just too cool and has moved past it yet it is the highest selling secret layer of all time. Some of that is FOMO for sure yeah. because it's limited and potentially good for Commander. And that was the main gripe, right? Was that you have these things that are potentially like very powerful and format warping and only available at a select time to a select few. And then uh, there's there's stuff like Rick showing up in Legacy Humans or whatever. So... I understand if people were like, oh, I better I better get this and you know, I don't want to regret not getting it or having to pay like two hundred dollars for a rick somewhere down the line. So I get it. The sentence having to pay two hundred dollars for a rick is very strange. I like that it's part of part of what we have to discuss now. Nickelback isn't that bad, dude. I like this is gonna be a really controversial part of the podcast. And I, I'm not trying to argue that they are a good band. Certainly their lyrics are some of the dumbest I've ever heard, but like they're competent musicians that put out like songs that a bunch of people like. I never understood why they became like the poster child of just awful music. There's there's way worse bands out there than Nickelback. It's, it's just one of the original memes, right? I mean, I guess so. Yeah. Is, are you sure you don't want to save this for next week on the podcast where you make me talk about something I don't want to talk about? We just go over the Nickelback dis- discography for like the entire show. Oh my God. Song by song, we'll discuss all of Nickelback's greatest hits. No, I, yeah. I'm not trying to make a case that I like them. It's just like, it, it's, it is a meme. You're exactly right. It's one of those things that caught momentum and then it kind of spins up on itself. But, uh, that's what happens here a lot of the time, right? Like all, well, all magic on, and announcements are momentum based. Yes. Let's let's circle back to music. At okay. Least. I don't 
think that Nickelback is a heinous band, but I think that there are a lot of strikes against them, like you noted the lyrics. And I, I think that there's a, a few different types of mu- musicians who get into it. And like, certainly that evolves over time, right? It's like, you want to make music because you like ma- making music and you want to make music like for yourself and for expression and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then someone like Nickelback comes along and it's like, it's very clear that they are trying to get on the radio and make money being musicians. But to me, that's, that's not a fault. Like there, there is, no, I know there's I know. beauty in like making a song that a bunch of people like and pop I, music is entirely that. Right. And I don't think like you can disqualify them as musicians because clearly they are competent and anyone who, you know, studies songwriting to the extent that they do. I mean, maybe it's like natural that they have this ability to tap into the broader collective want for a type of music. And that's a talent in love itself. So it's like they're obviously accomplished musicians. They've obviously dedicated their life to music. I'm sh- I am positive these people love music. Like they don't go home and sit in silence and they they have their influences and most of their lives have been built around music. And it's so easy to see them as like this monolith, this thing designed to just get money and exploit the recording industry. But like there's, there's people behind that too, who are just musicians who happen to be good at making catchy, stupid songs that a lot of people like. Right. And I, I think that the the difference is like, it's cool if you sit down to, to write a song and someone hears that song and they're like, Oh, that is, that's really good. And then if your goal is to sit down and just brainworm someone, <laughs> that's less respectable, you know? Yeah, but it, it still takes talent. Obviously, it takes talent. It's just a different kind of talent. Yeah, I, I look. I don't know the people from Nickelback. I don't know when they sit down to write songs if they are trying to say, "Let's produce a hit," or "I just like this song. I like the way this sounds. This is pleasing to me, and I want to make it." No idea what their process is like, but I could I could see how, as a musician, and I, I'm not a particularly accomplished musician, but I have played music my entire life. I play a bunch of instruments. I've even recorded like demos don't look for them you can't find them and i'm never giving them to you yo no hook it up not happening hook it up this is gonna be the uber uber patreon tier reward uh maybe maybe that's brian will just play music to you (laughs) yeah but like the process it's very easy for me to see how it could become just something that is pleasing to a bunch of people. And like someone hears your song and they're like, Oh, I really like that. And then you go, okay, people respond to this. And you just continue to go down that rabbit hole and your sensibilities get shaped in that way. And all of a sudden you're just like a mega pop star. And I think it catches a lot of people by surprise. It wouldn't surprise me at all if that's the case. And if that's what's happening in the case of Nickelback as well. Honestly, man, if, if Papa Roach had like, one or two more commercial successes, they could have been Nickelback. Maybe. They certainly wrote like catchy new metal songs that a lot of people liked. And you look back on it, it all sounds... That's the thing is like, you look back on most music and not a lot of it holds up. Like a lot of it is always going to be a product of the moment. And then there's obviously timeless things that you can listen to forever. But if you look at a genre, especially when it comes to pop, like listen to some 90s pop now and it is very hard to enjoy in any kind of serious fashion. And I think the evolution of music is always going to be such that these things sound a little stupid and a lot of music sounds really stupid. And just because you're not timeless doesn't disqualify you as a musician. Yeah, I guess that is another way to describe what I was talking about before where it's like there's two types of musicians, right? Like one, I think the first the first one is like sitting down to record a song that will 
hopefully be timeless. Mm -hmm. And the other one is very much trying to capture the moment and, you know, maybe have like some lyrics that are very time appropriate and kind of like allows the song, even if it's not like as catchy or as good, will endear itself to the person who's listening to it because they connect with it or something. But yeah, like different skill sets. It's kind of like if you, if you think about it and I'm not a huge modern art fan, like I've tried and I've gone to a bunch of like modern art galleries and it just doesn't really click with me. I guess I'm too simple for it, but it, it's this distinction between modern art and like the classic masters where you look at something painted by a traditional painter and you can just go, Oh yeah, this is, this is beautiful. Like the talent required to produce this is incredible. Look at how they have produced this incredible landscape and the subject is captured so well. And then you look at modern art and it's like a ball of sugar with a bunch of sweetener packets wrapped around it. And that's, that's from somewhere, maybe the Simpsons did it, but you get the point. Like it's, it's not inherently beautiful, but like there's something there. There's a statement to be made and they're two very different skill sets, but I, I think most people would accept that there's there's talent in both. Yes. All right. Off of music, off of art, back to uh, Lord of the Rings and whatnot. So there's there's also this D&D set coming out that is not part of this. And the D&D set is just in, in place of a core set effectively or is a core set. Yep. And the difference between that and the voyages to universes beyond is that these are basically supplemental sets. Like they're kind of taking the release schedule from the master stuff that they supposedly shit-canned. Uh, so these are not going to be standard legal, which makes me like less upset about the whole thing. Yeah. It's good. I think it's good that they're not standard legal. I just am not very upset about this in general. That's that's kind of where I fall on it. It, it feels to me like it was an inevitability. And this this falls squarely under the stuff that I look at as not for me, but like it's going to matter to a bunch of people and it's going to bring more people to the game. And if you're not degrading standards so you can fit Rick's steadfast leader into it, then I'm mostly wow. for it. You remember I'm the whole you remember the whole card name? Yeah, well, I, I just wrote about it in my uh, I guess uh, it was my article. It was my fact or fiction response this week mm, on Star City. So okay. I had to, I had to look up the full name. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm not, I'm not like upset. I'm not like, Oh, quit magic, blah, blah, blah. I, I should honestly just go through and read the text messages that I sent to Nick Prince today. Cause we were talking about this a little bit, but so like Nick's, Nick's point on Twitter was that magic has been doing th- these sorts of things for a very long time. His examples were like uh, swords to plowshares and, I don't know. They're like I, I don't know if he brought these up or if they were just in the comments, but just like Arabian Nights, Presence yeah, of the Master of has Arabian Einstein Nights. on it. Even stuff like Innistrad and Theros, like these, these are like cribbed versions of other mythologies or universes or, or whatever, right? So the difference to me is that it's one thing to be like, okay, this is Magic's version of Zeus, and this is literally a card <laughs> named Rick and has a picture of Rick on it. You know, regardless, like it it doesn't change my experience with magic. I think that despite the art for magic making me interested in it now, if like the cards were like their names were all just numbers and they didn't have art, I would still just happily play the game. Right. So I, I don't I don't really care about all of this. I think it's better that these things aren't in standard because there are people who are going to, you know, look at it the same way as I do, but feel more strongly about it. 
And I think when you're kind of like forcing that upon someone, then it's less good. And if people want to engage with it, they certainly have the option to. And I think that these sets are going to sell well, regardless of being in standard or not. At least, at least Lord of the Rings. I think Lord of the Rings is going to do well. I know that forty, like Warhammer forty k, is big, but I don't know, you know, how how many of those people actually want to try and play Magic or something. So it, it seems to me like that's a a good spot for crossover value. Like those are very high investment strategy gamers, and they're certainly going to be open to the idea of buying a bunch of Magic cards and you know spending thousands of dollars. So I understand targeting Warhammer specifically, even if it doesn't have the broad appeal to of something fair, like Lord of the Rings. To be fair, I think there's maybe a split between people who like painting miniatures and playing strategy games. Okay. I, I don't know enough about the space to comment on that, so uh, that's that's fine. I, I'm not sure how how exactly their their world is founded and how much of what percentage is what so i'll reserve comment on that i i want to i want to point something out though this is technically premium content don't tell cedric but this is what i wrote in my factor fiction this week about why i am not excited for strixhaven and i said what I've seen of this world so far feels extremely derivative of an already derivative fantasy world. <laughs> for the most part, magic deals in tropes, and that vibe has always worked for it. But this feels a little less like Delver of Secrets winking and nodding towards the fly, and a little more like Rick's steadfast leader. So when it so, comes, so we we agree on that that there is a distinct difference between derivative and like literal carbon copy, right? Yes. Yes. And in in my opinion, Strixhaven started to feel like it's drifting too far towards the this is just Harry Potter again side of the spectrum. And if you told me that this was like planned to be the Harry Potter set for and they the just couldn't get the this, license. Yeah, I would believe you. Like that that makes sense. There's a lot of similarities going on here. And for my core magic worlds, I like the idea of winking and nodding. I think the tropes have always worked well for magic and they've certainly, they went harder in the past. Like Arabian nights is less a trope and more. This is Arabian nights. These are things from this mythology, right? Uh, the evolution to wink and nod as opposed to state, I think has been cool for magic and has made it feel like its own unique world. But if these things are just like outside explorations and I don't spend all my time when I'm sitting down to a magic tournament, whenever we can do that again, staring at Rick across the table from me or, getting beat up by Gandalf, then I, I think they're fine and fun and cool and a lot of people will like them. And for as much as I was anti The Walking Dead, it was never really about the production of other IPs. It was that specific IP and how little it had to do with magic space and how discordant it felt from everything else in magic's world to have a stupid baseball bat be the equipment. Like, yep. It, it just didn't track, but this stuff tracks. This this makes more sense to me. So if there's more things like this, go for it. I want more people to play Magic. I want more people to have fun with Magic, and uh, I, I'm not all that upset about this. One of the things that I am kind of disappointed in is that uh, I, I you know bring this game up a decent amount, but like the lore in Genshin Impact is actually really really good, mm -hmm. and they've release two of the seven or eight continents that they're going to have, or like not continents, but like, you know, big, big towns, big areas. And you only have like partial history of the lore for like the two that you're in. And the story is of the main game is not finished, but it's like the, the storytelling that they do and their character development and the way that they drop like subtle hints through various like quests or on item flavor text or whatever for you to piece all together is rad. Yeah. And 
I want Magic to do that well. I think that they have the capability of doing that well. But instead, Magic's lore is, it is just very tropey and falls flat. And I think a lot of it is because they're just like, well, let's do, you know, Theros and Innistrad or this D&D set. And they try and figure out ways to create like, you know, Harry Potter world and then drop Jace in it versus like, okay, you know, what what is going on with Jace in this multiverse or whatever. And I don't know. I'm just disappointed in that because I think that magic definitely could hook me on lore. And obviously there are, there are certain, you know, like pieces of the story or whatever that are very, very well done. I don't want to say that, you know, just blanket, it's all bad because it's certainly not. But I think that it could be so much better. And this kind of gets in the way of it, just them doing these derivative worlds rather than just focusing on creating their own thing. One of the things that struck me during my time with Genshin Impact, which I don't really play anymore, but did appreciate and thought it was quite good when I did play it, there's just a sense that a tremendous number of people had to work on this game because there was so much, there was so much depth to the lore and so much just written content and such beautiful cutscenes, and the world itself was so large and the interactions were so good. And you just had this feeling that like, wow, they dumped a ton of money into this, had a ton of staff, and were willing to take that gamble to create something really special. And the impression I get from the magic content creation space is that it's a pretty small group and they see it as kind of an ancillary part of their product and not the most important thing a lot of the times. Yeah. And you but, I mean, you can fix a lot of problems by throwing money at that and just having a huge, a huge staff producing this stuff. To be fair, the play design team is also very small and they're a core yeah. part of Magic's success. So. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's exactly the point is that, and I don't know how like the dollars drawn by Genshin Impact compared to the dollars drawn by Magic, but uh, comparable would be my guess, if not in Magic's favor. I, I don't know that. So maybe I shouldn't even speculate, but I know Genshin Impact does very well. It made a lot of money very quickly, but so does Magic. So you'd certainly like to see more investment in the infrastructure and more people producing these things, I think how is how you get the better products like like Genshin Impact has. Because you spend any time with that game, it's the immediate sense is that, wow, this took a ton of effort and a lot of people working towards the school. Yeah, I mean, even if, you know, you don't like the characters or the gameplay or the gotcha system or whatever, like, I, I think that you can still appreciate that aspect of it, certainly. Absolutely, yeah. And yeah, with, with Magic, it's like you, you get that like thrill some of the time. And I think a lot of the time it happens with, you know, the stories that were written on the website before. Like I definitely read a a lot of them, probably not all of them, but it just, it just doesn't translate the same way. And it's like a thing that seems to be created like after the fact rather than, you know, this is the thing that's driving it. It's like, Oh, we want to go to this world. Okay. We'll like now make a story about it rather like, where is the story going to take us? Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction, letting letting the narrative drive the plane as opposed to the plane drive, drive the narrative, which, I mean, I don't, I don't know this, but that seems to be the way we do this, is that we want to do this thing, so let's figure out how to do it. And uh, I think the Gatewatch characters made that problem worse. I, I think they felt very shoehorned, and I'm super happy we got away from that. But it's funny, that's when I think a little bit more effort was being invested into the story. Yeah, exactly. And it didn't work for me still. Like that was, that was not what I was looking for. And I guess under those guidelines, it's like, well, why did we invest in this? It, it didn't work. It didn't really hit a home run. So, uh, and we're selling more magic cards now. So let's just 
go to Lord of the Rings world and let's let's go to Warhammer world and it doesn't really matter all that much. And I can't really fault them for reaching that conclusion. I just wish a different conclusion was reached. Same. I will note that if if anyone has like a huge, huge issue with this, you should probably think about why that is because you probably shouldn't, you know, other people are going to like this. That's cool. I'm I'm super happy for all of the Lord of the Rings fans out there who, you know, made like imager dumps off like magic card editor with like all of their Lord of the Rings characters and stuff. And like, this is the thing that they wanted their entire life, right? Is like this mashup between the two things that they love. And I think that that is awesome. And you can just let people like things. I think that's cool. Uh, if you think that this is going to be like money grabbing sort of thing, then your your problems with capitalism really not not with like this set. So yeah, that's that's where I usually fall on this kind of stuff is maybe maybe it irks me a little bit. Maybe I don't love it, but like we all got to make money. I do things I don't like to make money. I, I spent the vast majority of my life doing things that made me miserable just so I could survive and make enough money to get by. So I it's a frustrating system, but it is what it is. And these these cards are going to be fine. It, they'll exist. You'll see them rarely, probably. Almost never is my guess, unless you're like a dedicated commander player, unless you like them and you you want them to be part of your experience. Uh, I have a feeling like playgroups will feel similarly over these things. Your regular commander set is either going to like these or not, and the opinion's probably going to propagate through everyone. And I hope no commander playgroups are going to split up because someone wants to play with Lord of the Rings and someone doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the Walking Dead stuff was like, you know, because it was limited release, potentially very expensive, stuff like that. Like, I could understand wanting to ban it if it was also, like, very powerful. Like, you know, what if Lotus was legal in everything, but only less than 1% of the player base could have them, right? It's like, well, that's that's just kind of silly. I, I don't think that those cards are up there power level-wise, but I think that it sets a bad precedent. And I don't think that these are going to be like this. Like, these are almost certainly just going to be, like, print-to-demand if you if people keep buying them, then they'll keep making them. So I don't think it's going to have that issue. Uh, so I, I would imagine that people are going to be okay with it. Maybe it's going to feel weird to get attacked by a Gandalf or whatever, but you'll get over it. I think we may have done this question before. Do you have a secret layer that would just like put you over the moon on this idea? Maybe not a secret layer. Do you have a, a universe beyond that you would just be like, yes, 100% in, can't wait? This is sort of how Nick and I's conversation started was he messaged me asking if he asked me like a specific example, but like if I liked the crossover things in general, he was like specific thing. Would you be offended? And I was like, well, yes, but I, I don't really like these crossovers. And unless it's like, this is the shtick, this is what we do is like, I don't know, you know, for, for Magic's thing, it, it is the multiverse, right? They have multiple planes. And if they wanted to put D&D &D in the same universe, then they could do that. And I, I suppose that would be fine. But I mostly stick away, stay away from IPs like that because I don't like that concept. Hmm. Where it's just like, well, we can just kind of get Go whatever anywhere, we want in here. The rules yeah. don't apply, like a bunch of Deus Ex Machina stuff. So I'm, I'm just kind of off those in general. And like, that's sort of a reason why I, I'm not really into magic's lore, but there's, there's, even if they did like secret lair for like a thing that I liked and it was well done, I just would not care because I have no interest. Like magic is magic to me. And the other things I like are the other things. And I can't imagine 
wanting those things to like exist in magic or on magic cards or like, Oh, I want to play like this deck with this weird other fictional character from this other IP in a tournament or whatever. It's just like, no, that stuff doesn't grab me at all. Yeah. I, I keep like searching my brain for the things I'm really into and trying to find one that would inspire excitement if it showed up. I haven't found it yet. I hope there is one and I hope they make it. Like I hope they just find one where I'm like, yes, this is what I've been looking for. But if you ask me to come up with one, I don't, nothing springs to mind immediately. I think for a lot of the same reasons you said. I I know that I'm weird in a lot of the distinctions I make about things, but yeah, I just feel like magic is magic and I wish that it would focus on its own story, its own lore and just create its own universe rather than like, you know, oh, you, you like Lord of the Rings. Let's put Lord of the Rings on a magic card. But I mean, it's, it's definitely going to make money for them, right? So why, they should absolutely do stuff that is going to make money for them and allow them to continue making magic because I love magic. But that sort of stuff is just not for me. Good way of looking at it. Also, I'm, I'm going to out you, but I'll out myself at the same time. So it's not so bad. You are very much a person who, when you sit down to eat, you make sure your food does not touch <laughs> the other food on the plate. Like you want your vegetables separate from your thing. No mixing ever. I, I grew up like that. Like for whatever reason, I hated when my things were separate to the point where when my parents were serving me dinner, they just started giving it to me in like four separate bowls because I knew I was such a head case about it and couldn't deal with it. So I, I'm sure that this is reflective of whatever way we approach these things where we like to like compartmentalize things, keep them separate, not have things cross over. I've gotten over it with food. Maybe I'll get over it with magic cards as well, and I'll happily cast a Gandalf someday. I'm I'm not quite as strict about it as I was as a child, and it sounds like your parents loved you, whereas uh, there, there, <laughs> well, were, there, were, there were people in my family who would just, you know, like constantly berate me for it. And... I mean, they they used such excuses as like, well, it all mixes in your stomach anyway. Like, right. what's the difference? It's like, well, why don't you just stir it all together then? Like, I don't I don't taste it when it's in my stomach, right? That's the difference. I'm not trying to put, you know, gravy on my macaroni and cheese. That's just like not a thing that I'm trying to do, right? Yeah, I, I had a, a split, really a split council where my mom would like do all this stuff for me and my dad would be like, you're weird. Stop being weird. Just be normal, please. <laughs> and it was this constant back and forth between one person trying to like enable the weirdness that I had and one person just being like, can I just have a normal child for the love of God? Yeah. It's, it's really not that big of a deal though. No, it's not. It, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. So I, again, that's one of like, in addition to let people like things, let people eat food. However, they want. <laughs> let people have multiple bowls and enjoy their food separately. Yeah, man. I, I don't know. I don't get it. Uh, it. I think it is there. There may be somewhat related. It's just like, you know, this food topping is supposed to go on this food and not on this other one. And like, I don't want to mix them. Like part of it is because of taste. You know, I just think it like tastes weird. Like I can eat one thing and then follow it up with another thing. And even if those things like don't mix well and taste well together, like it's fine. Right. Like that's just a normal thing that people do. You know, you don't you don't douse your cheeseburger with fruit punch or whatever. It just doesn't make any sense. Some people probably do. Probably. I'm sure there's there's some weird YouTube channel where they eat things like that. Yeah, cheeseburger milkshake or something. I don't know. So yeah, it's just it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I'm I'm not gonna get mad about it. There there's there's so much other crap happening in the world that you can expend mental energy getting outraged about and this is probably not one of them. 
Yeah, lots of other spots for anger. I'm sure we'll even find more on today's cast as we go through things. We'll find something else to be angry about if we're not going to be angry here. Oh, let's talk about Standard. Oh, worst uh, format of all time. No, no, I'm actually not that mad at Standard right now. I, th- I think it's pretty great, actually. Uh, define great. Okay. <laughs> in, in the context of modern magic over the last few years, this is one of the better Standards we've seen. Okay, great. Low bar, super low bar. Lot of different archetypes yes. that are viable. Yes. I'll say that. I won't really go beyond that. I mean, the games the games are okay. The deck building is fun to an extent. I want like some some more cards, basically. Like I want to have a few more options because I do feel like we're pigeonholed in a lot of stuff where, you know, like Mono Red doesn't have great sideboard options and you're like, oh, I'm going to play this white deck and you know that you also don't have a lot of great sideboard options. You're like, well, I just know that glass casket is going to be in my deck and whatever. Whereas blue, it's like, what counter spells do you want to play? Uh, what sort of card drawing spell do you want to play? Like things like that. You just have infinite options, right? How, how much of this is the lack of options and how much of this is the quality of the outlier options where like some things are so good that you just have to do it. Like for instance, I build a lot of decks and, have a very hard time getting away from Edgewall Innkeeper because it's still a ridiculous magic card. And even just the adventure creatures in general, like why play one spell when two spells will do the job? Thank you. I'll take them both. So it, that is what I feel more than the absence of options. And I'm curious if you feel the same way. So I think that Innkeeper is one of the last remaining cards that had that issue. It, it's it's also just like a very egregious offender because it means that you need to take eight to you know, 16 adventure creatures with you. So just yes. dictates like a huge portion of your deck. However, since uh, call time, I've been able to get away from that a lot more than I used to. And a lot of it is because of the Fertel cards, not necessarily because they have Fertel, but because they're just very strong, like Outruns Epiphany, Behold the Multiverse, stuff like that. It's like, if I want to build a teamer deck, which I did in the last week, I, I don't feel beholden to Edgewall Innkeeper if it's not... Uh, you know, a thing that I'm leaning on to win in a certain matchup or whatever. Like there, there are no sacred cows for main deck slots, but there's certainly like a very strict list of like, these are the cards that are playable full stop. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I don't know, you look at the mono red decks, right? It's like they play Fervent Champion and Fireblade Charger. And yeah, there are some other like pretty bad one drops, and there are some other like pretty bad two drops, but like for the, for the most part, you're kind of locked in. You're just like, nah. If I want to play like eight twos, like these are kind of the ones that I have to play. If I want to play eight ones, these are the best ones, et cetera, et cetera. Like you don't have a ton of options in that regard. So like if you're playing mono red, I mean, probably forty of your cards are locked in, and that just kind of stinks, especially when it comes to the sideboard stuff where you just don't have a lot of options. And yet. Here's Mono Red kind of looking like maybe the best deck in Standard. I mean, I think that's debatable, but it, it certainly has a claim. And it- Yeah, it's it's debatable. It's certainly very good. So like when you're talking about Edgewall, Innkeeper, Lucky Clover, Omnath, it's like, yeah, okay, your, your deck is kind of pre-built once you decide what you want to do. That's not a bad thing because all your cards are busted. And in the case of Mono Red, it's not that like your cards are mediocre, they're all like B pluses, but your game plan is so good right now that it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at specifically the card Faceless Haven, because I I still like if you present me with the stats of that card, I am still 
somewhere in the middle on it. But it plays so effectively in the current landscape of standard and does such a good job just functioning as the mana base addition to these aggressive decks strategy where like it's basically free because they are monocolored and they don't want to be more than monocolored. They're very happy falling into that line and getting this 4-3 that's just able to do this burst damage. And I don't think we really have like the correct deck to play with it, but especially the 4-3 in conjunction with Alvin's Epiphany has been a card that has blown me away in terms of just being able to produce this burst damage out of nowhere with very little investment from your deck. Like you play a mutable in your deck and you expect to at some point get in two damage here or there where the coast is clear. You play this card and it just chunks your opponent out of nowhere and can very quickly wrap up the game. Yeah, this this card is really strong. Definitely undervalued it because of how expensive it is. I think I thought that maybe like three toughness is not enough for how expensive it is, but it is. It just yeah. is. Bone Crusher Giant defines what is what is enough, and three is the break point that I'm mostly looking at at this point. Yep, for sure. And I mean, there there are things that are happening now with like frostbites and whatever, but yeah, there's not a lot of good ways to tag this thing. The black decks tend to be like these 80-card Urian messes, and they do play a lot of removal spells, but they also play a bunch of mana sources and card advantage cards to make Urian actually good, and you have to have like a pretty big end game. So, you know, you're not super consistent as far as drawing your spot removal spell all the time, and you have to use your spot removal spells early and so on. So, I don't know. They, they need to figure out if there's uh, like a, a land they can play, like a Field of Ruin, or I don't know if Lithothorn Blight actually turns this thing off or not. Probably does. It seems, it seems like it should, right? What is the text on that card? I just draw my card and be happy with it. And don't yeah, Enchanted Land loses all land types and abilities. So. That's an interesting one. Yeah, so, so things like that. People have to make those concessions to actually break even on this card or against this card. And I don't, I don't think we've gotten there yet. Yeah, I think also the black decks in general, not only do you have to, your, your removal is already taxed, but there is a bunch of sorcery speed removal, like Blood Chief's Thirst and Binding the Old Gods are almost always four ofs in these lists. And neither one of those is going to help you against a Faceless Haven. And it's a problem that as soon as you played against this red deck from the Urian side, you're like, something has to give here. I can't run the setup anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there are certainly more lists adding... You know, like they'll have four Heartless Acts or whatever, and they're adding like more and more Eliminates. And I've seen yep. some with upwards of eight copies of like that two mana removal. And Faceless Haven is a lot of the reason for that, or even just like Mall of the Skyclaves type of stuff where it's like, yeah. oh, these things hit hard and I need to kill kind of like everything that you play. And you can't really just rely on Extinction Event getting you super far ahead or even Shadows Verdict getting you far ahead enough because the Faceless Haven is going to kill you. Yeah, the sweepers are very conditional at this moment. Uh, there's no like nonsense with settle the wreckage or Teferi making your sweepers work at instant speed. You you are vulnerable, and that's good. I think it's it's good for these decks to have vulnerability. And one of the things I've appreciated about the standard is you can actually just attack and do things that feel to me like older forms of magic, where you pressure a wrath and look for holes that way, and then you're still able to find the last damage with a haste creature and a faceless haven that feels like classic magic to me and i've enjoyed it a lot yeah i agree uh so we're going to talk about a couple of standard challenges that happened on magic online also there was a star city what are they called called just call time qualifier uh yeah 
SCG Tour Online 5K Kaldheim Championship Qualifier, I believe is the full name, which I have to write a lot for my column. It doesn't really roll off the tongue, but still, uh, the, the, certainly the place where the metagame has been shaped over the past few weeks has been in that tournament. I, I miss it just being like SCG Indie, SCG yeah. Cincy, you know, like that was that was good times. Uh, yeah, I, I like tying the events to the location. I always like that for the Pro Tours better as well. Uh, and I, I still call them that. Like, I don't call them by whatever set name they have attached to them. And maybe that's just me being a boomer. But uh, I, I don't think I'll ever get over that. I think that they've been punished by switching it up a bunch. I think if they just stuck with one and ran with it, it would have been fine. Like, if we were still if we were still calling it, like, PT Caldheim or whatever, then... Yeah, maybe it would have caught I, on it, by now. It, it probably would have stuck. But I, I'm in this. I'm in the same boat as you, where it's like, it, it's funny because I could say like, you know, PT Nashville, and you'd be like, which one? Or I could say PT Almancat, and you'd be like, what city is that? And it's just like, yeah, yeah no good I know, answer. I know. Uh, anyway, uh, first standard challenge was won by Phil Helmuth, uh, Naya Fury. Is that what we're calling it? I saw a conversation in our. Uh, Slack channel for Star City. Oh, I think they settled on just Nia Adventures. Yeah, I've seen it called Nia Combo some places, Nia Adventures, Nia Fury, wh- whatever you want. We know what we're talking about. Some some version of an aggressive uh, gruel-based beatdown deck that uses Showdown of the Skulls and has this weird little combo kill bu- bu- built into it as well. So, Edgewall Innkeeper, 16 adventure creatures, 4 Showdown of the Skulls, 4 Goldspan Dragon, 21 land, some Sajiri shelters to protect Goldspan Dragon, and then Unleash Fury and Kazul's Fury. If you have not seen this yet, Unleash Fury is a card I did not know existed because it's a core set uncommon. Yeah. 1R instant, double the power of target creature until end of turn. So if you have Goldspan Dragon, a couple of these, that's that's a lot of damages. If you have an extra mana and a Kazul's Fury, you, you just get to become a men's team or battle rage, like combo kill people. Remember when I was talking about like the showdown decks that I was building? Yes. And yeah, spent I, a lot of time I, on these. Yep. Wanted wanted some reach. Mm-hmm. Wanted like a little bit of a, a combo finish. Well, this is probably the best one. This is pretty nice because Unleash Fury does a lot of damage with like Love Struck Beast. It's not just Goldspan Dragon, but like yeah. obviously Goldspan Dragon is just a, a very easy enabler. And then you know, Unleash Fury, Kazul's Fury with any of your big creatures is going to be a lot of damage. So you're also, you know, fighting people with Edgewall Innkeeper Showdown. You have some amount of interaction with Bone Crusher Giant. Like this deck is nice. In terms of just like accomplishing goals, this is the best deck in standard. It does so many things so well. Like you have the Edgewall Innkeeper package, which is this ridiculous source of card advantage. You have Showdown of the Scalds, which again, ridiculous source of card advantage you have a beatdown plan which is completely viable like just play your two drop shepherd of the flock have the love struck beast attack you you've won the game congratulations and then you have a combo kill on top of it like really what can't this deck do and then let's talk removal too because you have your four bone crusher giant and four giant killer which is just excellent right now we talked about the faceless haven problem giant killer does a great job of dealing with that there's so many of these large bodies around so this deck feels like it covers every conceivable basis it even does like the old school start of the format stuff that i was trying to do with goldspan dragon sajiri shelter where you just find yourself with an unkillable goldspan dragon it's got that plan too so i think this deck has so many ways it can attack you the sideboard cards are all nice very targeted very specific 
And uh, yeah, this this is where I start on this standard. I, I think this is now the best deck. It, and certainly mono red is in contention. Mono white is in contention at this moment. But to me, this is what is defining standard because it just does so many things. How do you account for this? Like you can account for one plan. Sure. You can take out their gold span dragon, play a bunch of soul shatters or something like that, or, you know, have a lot of instant speed removal so you can react to the unleash fury. That's fine. I, I think that's a great approach, but then you just get ground into dust by edge wall innkeeper showdown of the skulls and shepherd of the flock. So you have to be able to compete on that axis as well. And if you just dirtle around trying to go bigger than them and do something like cast ultimatum, well, Either they can just kill you through flat out aggression or they can take that moment where your shields are down and find a way to kill you with their combo kills. So I think this deck pressures on so many different axes and it's so strong right now. Yeah, a couple problems I see with this deck though is that you are locked in on a lot of card slots so you don't have a lot of flexibility. Like, you know, if you needed to get a bunch of removal in your deck, like say, you know, I assume that mono red and mono white are problems for this despite this deck beating mono red in the finals. They just seem like difficult matchups because you don't have a lot of ways to interact. But like if you needed to make those sorts of adjustments, it's like maybe you could cut a Shepherd, maybe you could cut a Kazul's Fury or something, but it's it's going to be really difficult to actually change the deck from what it currently is. And I think that this is sort of a benefit where the sideboard cards are all hammers. Yes. Like Paulo's article this week on Star City talked about you know, kind of prepping for the MPL thing and how their sideboard had just like a bunch of stony silences effectively, where it's just like Archon of Absolution is pro-white ghostly prison with flying. Uh, so like the, the mono-white aggro decks, basically it, it's so hard to beat, you know? What's the Scalding Cauldron? Scalding is, Cauldron, is, yep. is the card that people are like, oh, I guess I have to play this now. Uh, Oxymagonis against Rogues, Rolling Vortex against Ultimatum, Redain against like the the big control decks. And then you have like fire prophecy as your, your cheaper interaction. But it's like, it's, it's actually good that whenever you sit down to play against any matchup, you're just like, well, I'm only boarding in four cards because you can't really afford to change up your deck comp that much. Oh, that's a good point. And I, I think that this reflects that in construction and does a good job of acknowledging like what it can do and what it can't do. And looking for these hammers like Archon of Absolution was probably a big part to this deck having success. It'll be interesting to see how things change when like white decks are conscious of that card. Um, I, I said that I expected a downtrend in white decks, and I actually thought this Archon of Absolution slot might get reclaimed for some more cheap removal. That yeah. hasn't really played out. Uh, it, it seems like people are sticking to mono white, and I'm a little surprised, but... At the same time, I get it. Like, it's an extremely explosive deck. It, again, plays on an axis that most opponents aren't prepared for. And I think the real thing that's driving all of this is that the Sultai deck is just dramatically overrepresented still. And a lot of that is muscle memory, I think, where people anticipate, oh, you found the Sultai deck, so you just get to play it forever. The Sultai deck is interesting. It's strong. It was great deck building. But we talked about it. It has some very real structural flaws and some very real ways it can be punished. And I would say the same thing for like all of the control decks in this format, the the Esper Doom decks, the four color Doom decks, all of this stuff is exploitable in some way. So I think people playing that to the degree they are is opening windows for these other decks to have continued success. And probably what needs to happen is you need to get away from the control decks, people. Like they're, they're just not working at this moment. And I am 
a little perplexed by the draw, but at the same time, uh, I play a lot of stupid control decks and you can't talk me off of them a lot of the time. So yep. do what you want to do, but I, I don't think it's the moment for control right now. Yeah. The funny thing is like, this reminds me of uh, like a Hearthstone deck or a Shadowverse deck where like you're, you're beat down, you don't really run out of gas, other people can go over the top of you, but maybe you find a way to get like Leroy and mm. uh, what's the Warlock like plus four card? Oh, I, I'm too far removed from my Hearthstone experience to identify that one. Inner Demon? No. Unleash Fury? No, that's this card. I don't know. I'm, I'm out of guess. Power Overwhelming? Is that it? Maybe. Maybe that's it. Is Inner Demon a real Hearthstone card, or did I make that up? I don't know. Dude, Power Overwhelming. I haven't played Hearthstone in forever. No, nice card. But yeah, it's like creature gets plus four, plus four, or it dies in end turn or something, or it dies next turn. Well, yeah, it's it's it just reminds me of that where you're you're doing this beatdown thing and then you you just have like this burst combo finish and that sort of thing hasn't really happened in Magic. I mean, like Embercleave is kind of that, but Embercleave is also it doesn't have to be like a burst card, right? right. Where it's like, all right, yeah, I'll just make this attack. Embercleave makes it so you have no good blocks and you'll die over the course of like two turns. It's just like a powerful top end, but this is very much like an an all in like you know, pump my thing, fling it at you sort of thing. And if it doesn't work out, you're probably dead. Yep. No, but it, it makes sense because if you didn't have something like that, you were dead anyway. So find ways to win these games. And because you have these robust engines installed in the deck, you can afford to have those kind of slots taken up by a combo kill like that because you're seeing so many cards per game, which I continue to hate. And that that's still the biggest gripe I have with this standard is there's just too many cards in hand, in play, there's unlimited resources all the time that that's still what is bristling me at the moment, but you may as well take advantage of it. And this deck probably does it better than anyone else. It's one of the things I hated about Hearthstone and Shadowverse too, where like you didn't have lands, you just got a mana every turn. And, yeah. especially and your end game is always a full grip and like infinite options and right. just figured out how to maximize that. And especially in the case of Hearthstone where you had the hero power too, it's just like even more of like, don't worry you, if, if you run out of gas, something horrible has gone wrong. Right. Right. Yep. And that's very much how these games are playing out. And if both players have uh, a bunch of options and a bunch of card advantage and stuff like that, then you need to find a way to actually just kill them. And, you know, these these Unleash Fury decks, uh, people going back to Mono Red with Ember Cleave, it, it all tracks. It all makes sense. You know, everyone's got a bunch of options, so find the best way to just punch through and get the game over with. Yeah. Second place, Go Baron. Mono red snow. The, these decks are like mostly the same, like Annex, Bone Crusher, Giant, Fervent Champion, Fireblade Charger, Rimrock Knight, Robber, Embercleave, and then some amount of Frostbite, Torbrand, Goldspan Dragon. This one has one Phoenix of Ash. Uh, occasionally, you see since this one has twenty five lands. Uh, sometimes you see like Shatter Skull Smashing or Spikefield Hazard or something. This one has Castle Embreath. I think that. Uh, it's it's interesting that you can't play a bunch of those where it's like Zendikar happens and you have these like really busted DFCs, but then they also make Faceless Haven. So it's like, all right, you gotta you gotta kind of make a commitment, you know. Uh, so you get to play like two of those, and Gobaron opted for two Castle and Breath. I think that's pretty normal. But this is basically what you're gonna see. Not a lot of notes on this one. I I said my piece on red. Uh, I, I think this is a Faceless Haven deck first and foremost, and uh, does a good job of building a little top end into the deck for Ember Cleave. Is it, it, it's like the Kazul's Fury Unleash Fury of this deck, uh, but you mentioned it can work over smaller 
turns as well. And I, I think that as long as Ember Cleave is a card in standard, you will find some combination of red creatures to throw at your opponent and steal wins. Yes. What was it two weeks ago when I was talking about Gilded Cart and like mono red, no one drops? Yep. Yeah, I think I think that deck is good. So I'm basically just questioning whether or not the one drops are actually worth it, but I think that think that's that's for other folks to decide. I mean, it kind of works well with Faceless Haven, but also when you're playing like Bone Crusher, Goldspan Dragon, you're kind of just dealing them chunks of four anyway. So the chip damage isn't super huge, but you also kind of want to like empty your hand so that you can just spend your mana activating havens. So like I get that, but it is definitely something to consider and try out uh, for all those folks out there who want to, you know, try something different. Yeah, I, I like the shape of it. It's it is interesting the way these decks deal damage though. And I was talking with someone uh, about Clothis yesterday, and we were talking about how effective it is against mono red. And I think the answer is not very, just because of the way they do damage. Like you said, I, I mean, I I really like Clothis in like the older formats. Like I think it's super strong in Pioneer. It's it's strong in Modern against those style of red decks. I don't think it's strong here where they're able to put together this burst damage. And that's generally how they win games. It's not about the chip. It's about just huge explosions. Yeah. So people are like, oh, mono red. They're, they're, it's like modern burn, right? You want any life gain that you can get your hands on. And technically, you know, they're they're both red decks or whatever, but this deck doesn't have any burn spells. It is relying on killing you with creatures and just color shift everything to green. Yeah, and, that's a good way of looking at it. And you would against mono green aggro, you're not like, oh, I want to side in Clothis to gain some life. It's just like, no, they're they're gonna be hitting you in like chunks of four and chunks of eight, and it's going to maybe buy you a turn, but it's not like burn where eventually you just grind them out and they're top decking and they finally top deck a land instead of a spell, so you win. You know, it's it just the games don't play out like that. Wow, now that you said that, I'm looking through this deck and thinking about what percentage of this deck wouldn't make sense if this was green. I think it's actually very little. Like Bone Crusher Giant doesn't make sense. Frostbite doesn't make sense. And I think everything else, you can probably make an argument that it fits green's color pie. Yeah, like Torbran increasing color-related damage, maybe not so much, but... Yeah. yeah, but it also it also kind of works, right? Where like you you enable like maybe you have to do it in another fashion, but what enabling if, bodies makes sense to me. Yeah, what if Torbrand was just like all of your creatures get plus two plus zero or something? You know, sure, like because it, I mean, think about how it works here, right? Like the, there is no like you said, no burn spells. Yeah, it's you have basically you have frostbite. Doing that. You have frostbite, which matters, but yeah, yeah, this deck's only playing two copies, so yeah. It, I mean, this this is basically like a, a stompy deck. You know, this is not a, a burn deck. Yeah, that's a really good observation. And I, I don't know how that should change, like either building this or reacting to it, but I am I am positive that has implications on how you're supposed to approach this deck. Maybe the least of it is just like, don't rely on life game. Yeah, I, th- I think you just treat this like you would mono white or mono green, where you just want a bunch of spot removal spells. Certainly instant speed stuff for Goldspan Dragon, Faceless Haven, uh, the, the usual like ways to answer Embercleave or have uh, instant speed removal to like brick through Embercleave when they go for it, stuff like that. It's like, it, it all applies, you know, and they, they have some ways to like deal you the last points of damage with like haste creatures or Fireblade charger, bone crusher giant. But like if you're at three or something, I would feel relatively safe against this deck. And that's not how you would normally be able to operate against red decks. Right. Right. Third place. I believe I had trouble with this player's name before, El Yalo, Eli Yalo. 
El Yalo works for me. All right. Mono White, four faceless haven, obviously. Uh, two copies of Sentinel's Eyes, three Usher of the Fallen, which I think is probably correct, but still pains me very much. And yeah, Mollus, Skyclaves, Halvar, Mono White, Redain's main deck. Love to see it. I try not to toot our own horn so much these days. I used to be really into that. Um, I, I'm less into it now, but I do feel like you really a called weeks Sentinel's ago, eyes, didn't you? Yeah. No, no, that's not. What I, <laughs> I do feel like a few weeks ago we we did a show about standard, and we were both like, red is starting to look really good, and maybe there's a white deck where you're just working really hard to go maul into Halvar, and that's going to be enough. And then I feel like almost instantly after that, these two decks skyrocketed to the top of the format, and. I, I'm not surprised. These cards are so powerful. Uh, I, I like the idea of Sentinel's Eyes pushing Halvar a little bit more. I think like I might lean to four copies where I'm going as far as playing Sentinel's Eyes because it is underpowered in a lot of ways. But I've also found a lot of spots where the sizing matters. I think sizing is important in this format. So the plus one, plus one, and even Vigilance, if you're playing a lot of aggressive mirrors, like all that stuff yeah. adds up. You, you have to get through Lovestruck Beast. You get to outsize your stuff against stomp and frostbite to some degree it's pretty good on season hollow blade mm-hmm. and i don't know like who cares like you, you you put this aura on a thing it's cheap and then you can get it back later for very low opportunity cost like if you're not caught up in oh i need threat density or something like that then i think that this card is more than fine it's like maybe a card that i would have played one of you know just to try it or whatever but you know people have tried it and they're like no it's like two like two is completely fine you don't want to draw two copies, but you want to draw one enough of the time. And I don't think that you're losing out all that much because you generally have things to do with your mana, especially since you have Faceless Haven. In a yeah, it's it's just strange because this is like the one deck in all of Standard that doesn't produce card advantage and is just basically reliant on here are my cards, hope they're good enough. And in those scenarios, having a card with a little bit of a lower ceiling concerns me. But a lot of that could just be like, I haven't had to play with a deck like this in so long that I don't remember what it's supposed to feel like. Because this deck is still really good. Like I'm not, I'm not trying to trash it. It's, it's just different than everything I've played where I have limitless options. You will occasionally run out of cards here, and Sentinel's Eyes contributes to that. But like you said, use your mana elsewhere. Faceless Haven gets activated. Move some equipment around. You, you find homes for it. And the games don't go that long anyway with this deck. You're generally pretty good at closing out your opponent. Yeah, you run out of cards, but you don't run out of stuff to do with your mana because you have all the equipment, Faceless Haven. This deck also plays a Castle Ardenvale. Yeah. Uh, there's things like Usher of the Fallen. So I don't I don't think that it's it's bad that this deck doesn't have ways to use or to to gain card advantage, really. It doesn't like you don't it's it's similar to like the Hearthstone Hero Power thing. It's like you very rarely run out of things to do with your mana. So it's it's basically like you have cards, you have things to do. Yeah. I whatever i don't want to harp on the same point i i just wish more decks were operating in this fashion where they found things to do with their mana as opposed to just casting more spells yes i love mana sinks love them especially like mole of the skyclaves is so good uh you know it's not like overpowered like busted card or anything but it is very nice that you can play it for an immediate effect and then even if your creature gets killed it does something later on it's going to be you know kind of far down the line you know a few turns for sure but it, it is a card that is powerful 
relatively early and scales well late game, still just completely reasonable. And that's kind of like the perfect magic card to me. This deck is really good at making what should be meaningless cards meaningful. I think that's one of its best traits. Yes. Yeah, that is legit because all of your crappy creatures get equipped. You have cards to pitch to the season hollow blade, Luminarch Aspirin pumps them up. Yep. It, so one of the, the things that is funny about this deck is that there's a Legion Angel main and then three in the sideboard. And that just speaks to like the, the lack of actual sideboard options where it's like, yeah, if you draw the one Legion Angel, it's really good in certain matchups. But it's just like, if you had, if you had good sideboard cards, there's no way in hell you'd be doing that. I don't know. I mean, like if, if, if you need a source of card advantage, like you need somewhere to go just a little bit longer, this is, probably the best way mono white can do that. Like this is how you add more staying power to your deck against a deck with a bunch of sweepers or a deck that does have the capacity to actually grind you out. Legion Angel seems like one of the better options, actually. It's it's good, but the fact that it doesn't come up very often because you're only playing the one copy is the thing where I'm just like, yeah, if, if you had better stuff to do, you would just not be doing this. I, I think there's an argument to be made for like, if you need that sort of effect then maybe you play two main, two board. And I think that that would be fine. But when you're only playing one, you're just like, I don't really need this. It's just kind of nice to have. And I have the sideboard slots because they would just be like planes instead because, you know, whatever. Uh, so it's interesting. When Abe Corian played this deck, I think finished second in the SCG Tour online and lost to a mirror in the finals. Abe had four Legion Angels in the sideboard and didn't play the one main. And I wonder if in the post-board setups where you get in these matchups, like I'm mentioning the really grindy ones, I wonder if he went with a 2-2 split. That's, that's an interesting idea to me. Yeah, it it doesn't really seem worth it to me to only play one is mostly what I'm getting at. And the reason yeah. it is worth it here is because the other sideboard cards would be like, I, I've built these white decks before. Like I know, like you you struggle a lot of the time. There's, you know, you're filling out giant killers. You have a third copy right. of Redain, glass Get casket. your four glass caskets in there. That's the starting point. And then it's like, yeah, Draneth Magistrate is awesome. And especially with this, this Naya deck catching on, you probably, you could see a fourth copy of that. That'd be fine. But like Soul Guide Lanterns, like Rakdos isn't even very good, but it's like, the hell else am I going to play, man? I'll just yeah. play a bunch of Legion Angels. Who cares? Yeah, I guess so. Capriccioso. Close enough. <laughs> uh, Naya Adventures Showdown Combo Kill is just Embercleave. No, no Furies. Uh, Kazani Mammoth, Lovestruck Beast, etc. A little dismissive of our guy Arnie Brokenbrow here. What does this card do? Like, I, <laughs> I know the text on the card, but what does it do? It, it's your Unleash Fury. Is it though? I don't know. That that's that's the narrative I've been told. And I was, I believe I read it. So I think this is uh Dom Harvey's deck. And I think when he displayed this technology, he was extremely dismissive of the Unleash Fury setup, being like, this is just better. I don't think I buy that. I do think haste is meaningful and haste is pretty important in this format. So I like that. But I am telling you... Haste off of Showdown is good. We came to that conclusion for sure. Yeah, but the Naya Adventures deck is very real with the pure combo kill. And you don't need to work this hard on like including this mediocre creature. Like You could just do the good version of this, and I, I think that's fine. Yeah, I'm on board with that. Bullwinkle 6705. 
Naya Fury. Almost card for card what we saw on the other list. So no notes. A couple of run of fouls in the sideboard. Cool. Tight. Yeah, Phoenix of Ash instead of Ox. A Crowan War, which is is pretty good. Uh, fourth Shelter instead of 21st Land, but otherwise the main deck is like the same. Maybe the I guess this one only has three Fable Passage, but whatever. But yeah, pretty much the same deck. Very, very successful. Uh, sixth place, Telsa Cow. Want to call this Demir Rogues, but uh, no end of the story. Has four copies of Valky, Thieves Guild Enforcer, Soaring Thought Thief. Instead, playing four, Behold the Multiverse, and Saw Coming. So lots of counter spells. Less high on Ruin Crab into the story, and uh, Valky as mostly just a disruptive element that also scales into Tybalt late. Yeah, I I think I like this. I I think this approach is interesting it feels more cognizant of the there are actually people attacking me these days and there are real beatdown decks which rogues didn't put up with for a long time there was no real aggressive threat they ever had to contemplate and i think going in this fashion and getting to a little bit leaner setup with a little bit more meaningful cards can pay some dividends in matchups like mono red mono white give you a chance as opposed to just being absolutely buried which i think is where the rogues archetype starts against those decks i I just don't think you're able to play an effective tempo game against a deck using a bunch of cheap creatures so here you just load up on the cheap removal for heartless act for drown in the lock for blood chief's thirst and using behold the multiverse as opposed to into the story makes sense when you're getting away from ruin crab because you can't afford to miss like that's the big thing here is you you just can't afford to not have this card advantage source and if for whatever reason your opponent's graveyard isn't stocked up that's going to be game ending in a lot of spots given how good these decks are at producing burst damage and I'd even say that for like the naya deck as well you just don't want to leave your shields down all that often and you can't afford to invest these blank resources because these decks are so multifaceted at this moment so this is interesting to me i i like this rebuild i like that you found a way to add a top end and still have access to Luris, which is really cool you've even shored up against things like rakdos a little bit and granted that's not my biggest concern right now but uh, there could be a metagame where that's important again. Yeah. It's it's interesting to me where Ruin Crab is very polarizing. Like it, it enables your cards and is a good win condition against control in mid-range, but is pretty bad against aggro. Like it would die to just a Rimrock Knight a lot of the time. Yeah. And by getting rid of that... It's like, okay, well, maybe Into the Story is not as good anymore. Like, that's why Ruin Crab was in the deck, was to enable Into the Story. It's like, well, Behold the Multiverse is not that much worse. And then it frees up slots for you to play more spot removal. And this this deck is, like, kind of hedging, too, because it also has four Sot coming. So it's like, wow, you have you have 12 spot removal spells against aggro, and you have eight hard counter spells against things like Sultai. And then Valky, maybe not great against Sultai, but certainly able to you know, mess up the curve of any of these aggro decks, which is pretty nice. And like a lot of the things that Valky can transform into is pretty good. It's like pretty relevant taking a Lovestruck Beast or a Dragon oh, yeah. and then eventually becoming that. So yeah, yeah no, this- I, I love making my Valky's Lovestruck Beast. That's kind of my favorite use for Valky and it comes up over and over. And uh, yeah, this this is interesting to me. The, the card that, per- well, it doesn't perplex me by his absence. I, I get it. But the card I love right now that I think more decks should be playing, even though there are a lot of decks playing it, Alaran's Epiphany. I want to know what rogue setups look like with Alaran's Epiphany. And I, I get it doesn't, it doesn't quite line up. Like it's You don't have enough damage from the rogues in most spots to just like end the game off your Epiphany. 
but I think you can find ways to make it work. And I think you could find ways to benefit from those bodies as well in the rogue deck. And it just fits with so much flying uh, aggression coming out. So I want to explore that as well. And I know at some point I'm going to also find a way to put Toski into this deck and do the squirrel thing and draw a bunch of cards with my evasive rogues. And it's probably going to make it way, way worse than it should be. But uh, I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, I think Toski Epiphany is good. I don't think that you should play Toski with like Thieves Guild Enforcer. I was thinking more Merfolk Wind Robber into like Soaring Thought Thief. That's that's about the same thing. They're they're both they're both equally bad. Well, evasive. You you want ways to make sure you're getting as many cards as possible off the Toski. At least that's been my approach to Toski. Like I, I try and go wide and I try and go into the air. I, I get it, man. It's just <laughs> you just hate it. That's all. Yeah. Okay. So I kind of do too. When I was when I was proposing it, I wasn't too into it, so I don't blame you. I think Epiphany is good. I think there's very low opportunity cost, at least to playing one copy. You get to seven mana, or if you foretell it early because you have some free mana, then it, it's a free spell that makes you one ones at the very least. And the the high end is so huge. Yeah. Sorrento 04, seventh place, Sultai, uh Emergent Ultimatum. This one is Mystical Dispute Negate main deck. So being a little bit more cognizant of mirror matches, which I think is kind of where we were last week. But now you see like this top eight, there's just aggro everywhere. And things things like Mystical Dispute, you just can't play in your main deck anymore. It doesn't feel like the right time for it. Uh, I I do like that this deck has taken some steps to get faster. Like things like Wolf Willowhaven feels like a, a step in the right direction. Like you have to be a little bit more rampy than you were previously to keep up with these aggro decks, but I, I still think you're playing from behind, and I just generally don't love this deck right now. Same. Eighth place, BCS 8995. Uh, Rakdos splashing some core volds for some sacrifice synergies. Uh, Crone War, Claim the Firstborn, Village Rights, a couple copies of Kazul's Fury, and then you have like Corvold and Immersturm Predator. And Wolfstrider sacrificed their stuff. Uh, this one is like not going as hard on Croxa, only two copies of Croxa, and then four Skyclave Shade, three Valky instead of the Meyer Triton type of stuff. Yeah. And of course, some Boom Crusher Giants. This this is a deck that I've seen a lot of iterations of in a, a lot of places. And it's looked mediocre every time, but there's there's something here. It's close. I really like the idea of adding Kazel's Fury to this deck. Like we talked about you need to find ways to close games. You need those explosive one-turn kills. And this deck is finding some, but it's doing a worse job of it than the Naya deck. It has worse card advantage. The thing it does better is like manage large creatures, I would say, with things like the Akron War and Claim the Firstborn. You're able to extract a lot of damage from your opponent's threats, which I could see being beneficial, especially when we're talking about these low resource decks where they just don't have a ton of creatures. So you you take their thing that's holding a um, all the skyclaves and sacrifice it. That's a that's a really big get. You've done a large damage swing, and you've you've effectively curtailed a lot of their mana. You've controlled one of their few threats. So I like that in principle. Uh, I just don't know that there's enough favorable matchups for this deck right now that I'm really interested in doing this. It it feels like a worse version of a few other decks in a lot of ways. I like it in theory, but yeah, I just I don't think that it does anything particularly great just things like skyclave shade it's like yeah you have some things that sacrifice stuff but it's like who's who's that card really good against like even shadows verdict just tags it unless you have like a woe strider and play to sack it or something so i don't know i just Mm. 
I think that you could build it to be an anti beatdown deck if you wanted to, and you would still probably struggle there. Yeah, that's a bad sign. Yep. Uh, the other standard challenge that took place over the weekend was won by Snapcaster Bolt, and this is a deck that I absolutely love. It is an Obosh teamer deck that also has Edgewall Innkeeper. So again, 12, uh, 12 adventure creatures, Kazandu Mammoth, Goldspan Dragon, 26 land, four Alruns Epiphany, four Saw Coming, two Great Henge. So you get the, the Saw Coming Fortel combo with Goldspan Dragon to protect it, but you also have like some Time Walk Obosh shenanigans. And yeah, four Alruns Epiphany in a deck with a bunch of big creatures is, it's good. It is a winning strategy and a thing that I think is probably going to become uh, more popular in the, the coming weeks. Yeah, this is like kind of another version of the Naya deck where you have this almost combo kill built into some very, very robust card advantages. In this case, it's the Great Henge as opposed to Showdown of the Scalds. But a lot of the beats are the same here, where Alrin's Epiphany gets to function as your combo card almost, where you just kill your opponent out of nowhere. You're still doing the Goldspan Dragon stuff, still have the default beatdown plans that work absolutely fine. Brazen Borrower, a way to deal with some more problematic permanence. And then having access to the counter magic as opposed to something like the Naya deck. And if the Sultai decks set themselves up to have more ramp and get to their late game earlier, I could see them starting to give Naya some problems because they can outscale you. It's just that you have countermeasures to that and you're able to do it pretty effectively. But if they find a way to keep getting faster and faster, eventually it's going to become an arms race. And then I like getting back to this approach where you're able to just stop what they're trying to do flat out uh, with Saw It coming and then find your Alrin's Epiphany wins in the aftermath of that whole exchange. So a lot of appeal to this deck. And I also think they mostly all look like this at this moment, but there's a lot of ways to build this deck. Uh, you've been working on a list I know that I played a bunch and have been winning a lot with uh, pretty easily. So I am optimistic that there are more ways to do this type of Alrin's Epiphany big threat stuff. Yeah, I'm not going to like advertise my list as, as being like super busted or anything. It was mostly just uh, a kind of strategy that I like and kind of carrying it over from previous standard formats or whatever. It was, you know, like Cobra cultivate in an otherwise is it shell and just doing like some counter spell stuff and some ramp stuff and then topping out with epiphany. But yeah, making sure that you have things like spot removal and Ugin to clean up these aggro decks and you've, function like a tempo deck against any of the ramp decks and stuff like that. And it's like, it, it's successful. It might not be the the best thing possible that you could be doing, but it definitely has a game plan against everyone. Mm, and it scratches an itch for me that I, I just appreciate. It feels like it's kind of got that split up game plan where it's able to go multiple ways in, over the course of the game. Yeah, and actually, I guess since I talked about stuff like this on the cast previously, where it's like, I wanted Alrin's Epiphany in a green deck, this is basically what I was envisioning. And I think that like Epiphany here with a pile of creatures makes sense. And certainly playing Edgewall Innkeeper makes a lot of sense. Pairing it with Cultivate was the thing that I was thinking about doing. So I just eventually built that deck. But we were also talking about like Toski Alrun's Epiphany setups and the best way to actually do that. And I think that that's like another viable way that you could go. So mm. a, lot of, a lot of options. So... I don't mind when we get a card wrong. Like I, I'm just fine with that. Like cards are tough to evaluate during preview season and 
we're going to miss. It's going to happen. What I really get upset about is when I know a card is good and for whatever reason, it still doesn't make my lists. And that's where I fall on Alrun's epiphany. Just <laughs> yeah. like, this, this does something important. I know it and it's going to matter, but it's definitely not one of the top 10 cards. Like, why? Why wouldn't I have this on my top 10 so, list? My problem with it is that Alrun's Epiphany is very much a card where it's like you need the format to be in a certain place and you have to have like a good home for it and the right setup and everything. And those things weren't very clear at that point. So whenever I put a card like that on my top 10 10 list, it just like inevitably misses where it's like, oh, the setup's not there. Like I had, you know, Stitcher Supplier up there and it's like obviously that card is busted, but like it just didn't show up in standard decks for a very long time. So right. it's, it's that sort of thing where I'm just like, okay, we should definitely talk about this card, but as far, you know, maybe I'll put it in like the 10th kind of like honorable mention slot or something. But yeah, for the most part, I'm, I'm leaving those cards off the list because they're not slam dunks. I think I've just come to the realization that if you get to untap with your time walk, it's almost impossible for it not to be a meaningful card in most standards. Like there's, there's going to be a window for it to succeed and it's just about finding that window. And this one wasted no time. Uh, and I anticipate all future time walks calling it now. Every time walk ever. It's good. Yeah, I mean, you look at things like even, you know, part the water veil type stuff. It's like they showed up at some point. Yeah, They, they always did something. And this one is... It's interesting where it you know creates bodies. It like contributes to actual aggression and stuff like that. So yeah, I think that this almost certainly should have been there, uh, just because it's like well, the odds that it doesn't hit is pretty low, but it's possible. So I don't know. I don't feel bad about like keeping it off, just because I've been burned in similar situations. But all I the just, sides, I just all feel the bad about everything there. all the time, basically. Well, so. yeah, yeah. I mean, never, never look back and like, you know, count your wins. It's always looking back and counting your losses, right? Correct. Correct. Although I did count a win on this show. So I'm, I'm doing both today. I'm glad. I'm, you did, I'm but you, did, you also pointed out how you hated to do stuff like that. So that's <laughs> true. No clean counting of wins, I guess. Giba? 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 Giba. Giba. G-Y-B-A. Second place. Mono red. Same list as the other one. Yeah, some small sideboard differences, I think, but basically the same thing. Yeah, main deck, 100%. HT, 9911222, third place. Uh, Rakdos, actual Rakdos, no Corvold, but Sacrifice, Croxa, mashup. Yeah, much harder on the Croxa setup here. Back to timer, it calls the dead. Don't love this. I, I found some reasons to be okay with the other take on it. I am less okay with this. I think this deck has always been a very metagame dependent call, particularly a way to exploit rogues and not a lot of other great matchups with this deck. And I, I especially feel that about the present standard. This gets outscaled by almost everything. Nobody's resource light, so Croxa has a hard time mattering. And a lot of the cards here just don't match up with other stuff that people are doing. So I don't love this one. I like Croxa for the damages and the fact that it's big. Not necessarily... Not necessarily I'm going to grind you out, but then there's stuff where it's like, oh, Brazen Borrowers getting a little bit more popular and there's a lot of Giant Killer. Yeah. Giant Killer is another one that I think is a huge problem. And I don't know, maybe you find a good matchup against Mono Red because you're able to make that big body reliably. But I also think like you do a lot of nothing in some spots and 
yeah, you you can find good cards here. Like there are things like Meyer Triton gets points against red for sure. Rankle can do some damage against them. So maybe they found a good mono red matchup, and that's what this deck is mostly hanging its hat on right now. But uh, I would need to see a lot more rogues in the format before I was thinking about this again. There's a Necromancia in the sideboard, and I think that just as a rule, if you're in a spot where you feel like you must play Necromancia to compete... Don't don't play the deck. Don't play the deck. Yeah, kind of agree. I, I get it, though. Like, this all-time matchup's really bad, and there's only one copy because drawing two is bad. So, like, I, I understand wanting to play one. Like, I, I guess I endorse that if you want to play Rakdos, but then at that point, you just eh, maybe reconsider things. Yeah, I'm not even sure that Necro mentioning them is going to have a huge impact in a lot of cases. That's that's the bigger problem, I think. I th- I think it's solid, but yeah, you still have problems with, you know, 80 card Seagate restoration decks anyway, so. Right. Right. Bilster 47. 19 snow-covered planes, four faceless havens, the rest of the cards don't matter. Yeah, looks a lot like with uh, the other list we looked at. No notes. Four Legion Angels in the sideboard, though, taking that approach. So, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't It seems fine. I, I think you can go the 2-2 split after sideboarding. Okay. And that's where you really okay. Want. All right, check this out. Two Clarion Spirit in the sideboard. Where are you bringing those in? Why are they not main deck if you decide that they are playable? Where are you bringing those in? Where does a 1-1 White Spirit creature token with flying really matter? I believe it would be good in mirror matches to block things with Maul. Okay. But at that point, it's like, I don't know, probably just play it main or, you know, you already have like some disenchants and glass caskets and stuff. Maybe Clarion Spirit is just not worth the slot. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a hard time just quickly looking at this list, thinking of how my sideboard plan would work against the mirror like are you getting really lean and cutting off some of your top end and then just bringing in a bunch of glass caskets disenchants and taking on almost control style role against them it's just another point towards you have no good sideboard options okay when, when, when that's a card that you're thinking about playing yeah maybe i do like clarion spirit as a card I'll i do that. too i do too uh, Mazina Linda, fifth place. Naya, Fury, same main deck. Uh, same sideboard as the one that won the first challenge as well. Very interesting. Carolmo, Demir Rogues, classic. Three of one mind, three Merfolk win robber. That's how you know it's a deck from three months ago. Uh, <laughs> three Crippling Fear in the sideboard, which was also in the, the Valky Rogues deck that we talked about. And it's like, okay, that card's... That card's kind of interesting. It does kill Season Highland Blade, even with a Maul. Maybe not a Maul and a Sentinel's Eye, so taste it. But yeah, like the, I, the card is like a card that would just be a busted magic card before, but not in a land of like Lovestruck Beast and Goldspan Dragon and stuff. So I'm not super high on it. I think if other people were high on it, they would just have it main deck. But it is cute that you get to keep your rogues and, you know, maybe kill two creatures. Yeah, these options always matter a little bit. What's the other one? Is that not in standard anymore? Witches something? Witches Haven? Is that a that's, that sounds like a land? That can't be it. Witches Vengeance with choose creature type. Those get minus. Right, 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 right. Is that still in standard? It's in historic. I don't think it's in standard. Okay. Wombo Combo Twenty Twenty is disappointingly playing mono white and not the Fury deck. Cyborg options include two funeral longboat. This is this is just Abe's list, right? I believe so. Yes, uh, four Legion Angels in the sideboard. That points me in that direction. Yeah, nothing really to report here. You got to love those funeral longboats making the cut, though. 
So Longboat isn't bad. Like I, I, at least in the vein of you clearly have a plan with this against things like Saltai, Faceless Haven is an issue. Vehicles, similarly an issue. Does not die to the various sweepers and their spot removal is taxed. This is a really bad version of that though. Yeah, I mean, vehicles have a very obvious strategic purpose. Uh, I think if you find a home for them, I, I wouldn't really care all that much about the stats. You just want it to be a certain cost. You want it to be easily crewable. This checks those boxes. It's funny. <laughs> we used to have Smuggler's Copter in this spot. And boy, has this card downgraded dramatically from Smuggler's Copter. This says Vigilance. Oh, so it's better. You heard it here. Funeral it's, Longboat, better than Smuggler's Cop. I didn't say better. I just said it's not strictly better. I, I heard better. I don't know. It's like Smuggler's Copter was also like 10 bucks at a point, and this will never be $10. It's true. Cheap option always wins. Lucas Dusick, eighth place, mono red. This one has four Shatter Skull Smashing in addition to 20 lands. So getting a little greedy with the faceless havens but i mean shatter skull smashing is good i i understand the appeal it could be worth it yeah uh i i think i my my take on the dfcs is always like i want to use them to increase my land count not really cheat on them uh this feels like cheating so that is that's my gripe i wish there was a little bit more going on in terms of i i would add two mountains to this deck for sure Sounds good to me. Yeah. Then you can. And I mean, that also makes Shatter Skull Smashing better, right? Like right. now you're able to more reliably get to the mana threshold you want for it to be a really impactful spell. So if you want to go that route, no complaints whatsoever. Uh, as built right now, feels a little landlight. Yeah, agreed. I do like four Frostbite. I don't understand why you wouldn't play four Frostbite. Well, if you were making a read on the metagame that it was like a lot of Soul Tie, I, I think Frostbite's pretty medium there. But I sure think but, that would be a bad read right now. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> I get exactly. what you're saying. Yeah, fair uh, enough. Yeah, Cyborg, Oxvaganus, Rolling Vortex, Soul Seer, Red Cap, Melee, Shredded Sails, Akron War, just, you know, the, the six playable red cards. All six of them. Yeah, there's like Phoenix of Ash, but, you know, that's about it. Ooh, maybe maybe New Tech, Mono Red needs to play two Funeral Longboat, or perhaps the Gilded Cart. Right, you're a big gilded card fan, I know. See if you can talk them into that one. I okay, so even if I played mono red with no one drops, I don't think I would main deck gilded card anymore because it's it's like pretty bad against other aggressive decks. Like I played it kind of as a long boat against Sultai just because it smashed them, you know. Right, 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 right. But now I don't think you can I you can't really do that. I would just play like a bunch of frostbites and a bunch of shocks, call it a day. The cart will rise again, don't worry. You'll have it your will. moment. It will. There's always time for cart game <laughs> that, that can be game i guess good luck <laughs> 